0: If you're turning with me this morning, we're going to start in Mark, Mark 10. We're going to look at a a kind of familiar story, but God's going to speak some new things to us. That's the beauty of the living word and a live word. Even if it's a word we've read before, it can come out, jump off the page, and mean something completely different to our situation here and now today was one of those weird times where I had when I study and chew on a message all week and plan on a message I usually come up with a couple of things and they end up like coming together and making the message and it's just the weird way that I come together with it and I kind of had three things this week and all the way up until yesterday I wasn't really sure and they were all three like kind of like, how are these three fit together? But I felt kind of strong about all three of them and then even this morning it was like still got three and each one I look at, usually one will feel kind of dead or like that's not what I'm supposed to talk about today and even still this morning I got up at 4.45 and I was looking at all three of them and they all three had life and I was like because we're having a two hour service today and no, and <laughs> no, so I gave up on, like, I kind of, the one that kind of seemed like, eh, let go of that one. That one's not life for today. Let's go with the other two. And I kind of tried to mesh those other two together. And then the worship team meets early, and we have a little devotion. And we sat out there, and we started talking about something that was the one I threw away, like, came up in our devotion this morning. So then I was like, "Ah, that wasn't it. Go run back in the office and put that one back in and forget the other one. So uh, so I was going to talk to you today about, as you, if you could see my notes up here, I scribbled out the first part. See, what I was going to say is I want to talk to you about phases and baggage. And I was going to talk to you about different phases that we go through in life and, and even how the moon has phases, and it was super cool. But maybe we'll talk about it next week. <laughs> I was going to talk to you about a skateboard phase. But we'll, we'll take phases out of the equation, equation and I'm going to talk to you about baggage. Think about, I just want you to get this picture in your mind. A lot of you, probably all of you have flown on an airplane or been in an airport at some point in your life. The boys flew on a plane for their first time. My three boys last year was their first time ever on a plane. But you've probably all been in an airport, so I want you to get this picture in your head. Think about going through an airport, and you know those little carts that you can put your baggage on? And some airports charge you for those carts. You can go put your credit card in it or put change in it or whatever. But think about having a cart and stacking it full of baggage. And we went, there's five of us, me, Jesse, and the three boys. When we went, we flew out to Colorado last, last summer with Pastor Bruce and stuff. And just us five, that's a good bit of baggage. A Good bit, probably too much. Some stuff that was packed was maybe not needed. And then you're panicking because if your suitcase weighs more than it should, then they're going to charge you more money and they're going to charge you for each piece. And then we're in the line and we set it on the scale and Jesse's was too much. So we unzipped it, started pulling stuff out of her suitcase, a couple pairs of shoes and stuff and stuffing them in Sky's bag. But as it's all stacked on that cart, it kind of slows you down. It kind of stresses you out the more stuff you have to figure out and keep up with and make sure. and When I come to the baggage claim, all the bags that we're looking for and trying to find, and you see some people that are just walking through without much care with their little carry on, traveling by themselves, That begins to look pretty nice, I mean I could wear the same outfit for a few days in a row. Saves money, saves time, saves stress. It costs you. When you have a lot of baggage, it costs you time. You have to get there earlier. You have to plan on going through and checking in your bags and getting them weighed and all that stuff. And, and just uh, unloading it out of your car, getting a car, getting it to where you... Just the more baggage you have, the more it costs you. It costs you time. It costs you more money. It can cost you. And when you get where you're going, you can't just jump in a taxi. You got to wait on an SUV or something to fit all your baggage in, all your luggage in, right? You can't just rent a Honda Civic. You have to rent a car big enough to fit all your baggage. All the things that you're carrying around, maybe you don't even need, but it's slowing you down. Can I tell you today that your baggage is costing you. It's determining where you go and what you do. You know what else it'll take? Your baggage, if you get too much of it, it'll take your vision. When I stacked up all those bags on a cart and get behind the cart to push, you can't see what's in front of you. I may or may not have run into some things. Ankles cause people harm. Can't see. Why? You got too much baggage piled up. It takes your vision. Because you're carrying too much baggage. It'll cost you relationships. And it'll fill the space that was meant for God. Unneeded baggage comes in all different ways. We all carry baggage. We all carry things. We've all been through life. We've all lived. We've all gone through different things. And baggage can come to us in so many different ways. Remember, Paul talks about the load that you were meant to carry, the burdens that you can bear, your daily burdens and your but then he talks about the burden that you weren't meant to carry the burden that'll crush you the burden that you need to be in relationship with to carry excess baggage baggage that you don't need to be carrying around it could be a painful experience that was not your choice and so you picked up a bag and you threw it on your cart it could be a failure that you made 100% your fault. A sin or a mistake or a bad decision. And you picked up that bag and and you threw it on the cart. Now there's shame and guilt. It's bags on the cart. Could be the relationship that you thought would last forever and they walked out on you or they cheated on you. And you put that bag on your cart. Maybe you have low self-esteem and you don't value yourself. And because of that, you make choices that allow other people to hurt you. But you keep running back to them. And now on your cart, there's anger. You can look at your cart and see unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and and labels of what people have called you and And it's just bag after bag after bag and things that they've said about you and and fear. Fear is a big heavy bag that we like to throw on our cart. Keeps us from stepping out. No wonder it seems like you're wandering around the airport sometimes. And you never take off. You feel like year after year, I'm like I'm wandering around the airport and I'm carrying all this baggage and hurt and past and pain and this and that, and that and and but I'm never getting where I need to go. Why am I not making it to my destination? My purpose in God, where's the fulfillment? Where's the why? You feel like you're on a merry-go-round. Here we are again. I'm another year older and I'm in the same place. I'm still carrying baggage back where I was, around and around, like a merry-go-round, and we never take off. And you continue to come back to the same things over and over and over, and relationships change, and faces change, and it's a new job, but you have the same issues, and it's a new marriage. But stuff from the last marriage keeps coming up in this new marriage. And, and it's a new church, but now problems are servicing that there were in the old church. And now there, there's problems in the new church. Because of hurt and pain that you carried, because of excess baggage that you weren't supposed to keep carrying. Now there's problems there. It keeps showing up. It's a new school. Same problems. It's a new friend. But the same problems in this relationship. It's a new boss, but... Same problem. It's a new year. And things are going to be different. And then before long, they're not. You can't keep doing the same thing and hoping that things will change it's a new car but it still stinks and it's full of junk because you didn't change your habits of filling it full of trash you can get a new car and it'll be new for a minute till you get enough french fries under the seat cycle, you didn't change your habit. You didn't start washing it. It's because you have scabs and not scars. See, a scar is an indicator that you've been hurt. But you have healed. Scars aren't bad. Scars are testimonies. Scars remind us of stories. I have scars. I have scars all over me. I've got a scar. You can't see it because I have a beard right now. But I have a scar under my chin. And it tells me a story and reminds me that horses can kick with their front hoofs. <laughs> Got a good little jab. If you don't believe me, it's that half Belgian that's still in my mom's pasture. Going down there and make her mad. (laughs) But you know what? That scar's there if I shaved my beard. You could see a little scar under my chin where she knocked me out. But it doesn't hurt. When Azalea grabbed my beard earlier and snatched on it, I was about to say it didn't hurt. It did hurt, but it wasn't because of that scar or because of that horse kick years ago. It's healed up. I can look at that scar and I can tell you a funny story. I didn't think it was funny when my horse kicked me in the chin and knocked me against a fence. I didn't think it was funny at all. And I can look at my arms and, and tell you stories about... Big piece of glass right here. Big piece of glass sticking out of the back of my truck. Working on the youth center in downtown Waco. And I can show you, you may have noticed this big scar going through my eyebrow. And I can tell you a story about a coffee table that didn't have the glass in it. When I was a kid and I fell right through it. See, I can look at those scars, but guess what? They don't hurt me anymore. They don't cause me pain anymore. I'm not bleeding out. And every time you bump into me, if you come up and grab my forearm right where that piece of glass had shoved in there and was bleeding like crazy, you can come up and grab my forearm and I'm fine. It doesn't bust it open and I start bleeding again. Well, how would you do that? Get away from me. You're trying to hurt me. You're trying to take away. That's ridiculous. You bumped into me. But if I never allowed that thing to heal, and every day or every few days, every once in a while, I shove something down in there to keep it nice and open and infected and and never let it heal, then it's going to hurt. And when you come up not even meaning to, you could just come up and accidentally bump into me, and I'm going to freak out on you. Why? Because you're so mean? No. Because I got some wounds that I haven't allowed to heal. I allow them to scab over. So every time somebody rubs me the wrong way, it rips the scab off and I start bleeding again. I'm walking around with a bunch of scabs that were meant to be scars, testimonies, stories that I could point back at and say, that was painful when it happened, but look. Let me tell you how God used it. It's a testimony. Let me tell you how I grew. Let me tell you how, how I moved on past that. Let me, let me show you the fruit in my life from the things that I learned from that. Let me show you the person that that made me. Let me, let me tell you the story about that scar. But as long as it's this open festering wound or a scab, or, then I can't tell you a God story about it because it's not healed yet. It's baggage that I haven't taken off. It's baggage that I haven't laid down. It's it's areas that I haven't allowed healing. I wouldn't trade one scar I have. I wouldn't trade a wrinkle either. Some y'all. Y'all been making comments about how wrinkly I am. I wouldn't trade one of them. I don't ever want any kind of surgery or anything like that. I've earned them all, every one. I earned every scar I have. I earned every wrinkle I have, and I'm proud of them. It's a testimony to the life that I've gotten to live so far. I can look at them and tell a story. They don't cause me pain. I don't live out of my pain. If you rub me the wrong way, I don't start bleeding. You know, if you're walking along like, usually I get me a a nice full cup of coffee before I come in here to start the worship service. And I'll come out of my office and a lot of times I have a full cup and they all run up and start trying to hug me and I'm trying to do one of these weird awkward hold out my cup trying to so you don't dump it all over my shirt or all over you or something like that. Why Because the cup's full so if you get bumped, it's just gonna slosh out over whatever. If you're carrying around unneeded baggage and you're carrying around hurts and pains and offenses and bitterness and unforgiveness and all this stuff, then the minute somebody bumps into you or says something sideways, you're just going to slosh out everywhere. You're going to break down. That's not how God intended for us to live. That's not the example that we're supposed to give to the world around us. What do I got to do? You've got to address it. You got to admit it. Or it's never going to get healed. It's never going to get fixed. If you just ignore it. You got to admit to it being a problem. Or it will blind you it will keep you from seeing what god has for you it'll keep you from seeing the future the plans the dreams the visions that god would place in your heart your baggage it'll blind you so let's look at a blind guy in mark 10 this guy was blinded and he had to lay down some baggage to get his sight. And they came to Jericho, they being Jesus and his 12 disciples. They came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. He was just sitting out there begging like he did every day. He was blind. That's what blind people did then. They sat out and begged, just looking for a fix. Just, hey, give me a little bit. Give me a little enough to get by. Give me enough where I can get dinner tonight. and Give me enough to where I can get the couple things that I need. I just need a meal. I just need a food. And hoping they would get enough to get them some food and get them what they needed that day. And they'd be back out there the next day begging for another fix. Begging to get by, just a little bit. Just help me get by, help me. He wasn't even hoping for a for a healing. He was just looking for a fix, looking for a way to cope with the pain, the handicap. Let's finish reading. Verse forty-seven says, "And when he heard." You know, they say when you lose one of your senses, that your other senses become stronger. That his hearing probably would have been really good because he had been blind. So that he probably had really good hearing. Think about that. He was hearing the crowd and hearing people talking and hearing about Jesus and heard what. Did he hear him talking about miracles that Jesus had already done? I heard he healed a blind man over at Bethsaida. Yeah. Spit and put mud in his eyes. And dude could see. Whatever it was, he heard them. He heard them talking. He heard them. And something in what they said told him something about Jesus that gave him the faith to believe that he could do it for him. That he didn't have to just keep asking for a fix. It says, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. They said, Shut up, be quiet, stop screaming, hold his peace. You know what he did? But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. He got louder. The crowd's telling him, just be quiet. Stop it. says he got louder. Have mercy. And they say, shut up, man. This wasn't a polite cry. Hey, Jesus, maybe if you got time, I sure would like to see you. Have a little mercy on me over here. No. This joker was screaming so loud that people in the crowd were asking him to please shut up. Please stop screaming. He didn't care. See, he got to the point where he must have something. He finally got to the point where a fix was no longer good enough. I must have what you have, Jesus. And I don't care what anybody around me thinks. And I don't care who I annoy or aggravate. I must have you, Jesus. In fact, they told him to be quiet and he got louder. I must have you. So you're the only one that can save me this wasn't a polite cry if you have time Jesus it was a cry of desperation I'm done it's not working whatever it takes I'm ready oh yeah I need help but I it's gonna when, when you know somebody's asking for help, and you start telling them, and then all of a sudden they start coming at you with all their, well, I need it to be this and this, and oh, I don't have time. like, wait a minute, well, that's not a cry of desperation. That's it. You want me to catch you before you hit the bottom. This was a cry of desperation. I'm done. It's not working. Whatever it takes, I'm ready. You know it's your weakness that attracts His strength. That's kind of a crazy thing to think about. There's that that story where Jesus was walking along and the disciples screamed out and cried in the boat in the storm and then Jesus turned and went to them when He heard their cry, screaming and crying think sometimes he's waiting on us to just cry out to finally get desperate enough to cry out for him and in our weakness his strength is perfected not in spite of our weakness not he figures out how to work around our weakness no in our weakness is where strength is perfected it is your weakness that attracts his strength But you must cry out. So my question is, what's been telling you to shut up? I mean, on Sunday you hear him and you cry out. And on Monday your addiction says shut up. So you do. and you get a fix he cried out to Jesus if you could get rid of it on your own you would have already done it if you could pay for it you probably would have figured it out if you could have total freedom from any of your problems and get rid of any baggage and find healing for your hurts and pains and and if you could have your eyes open by doing certain things or paying an amount of money, I bet you would have figured it out. Same as him. Well if he could have, he probably would have already figured it out. He would have done something about it already. Verse 49, and Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. As soon as he cried out, Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped in his tracks. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, be of good cheer. Comfort. Rise. Same people that told him to shut up. One verse before. Now said, be of good cheer. He's calling you. God's got a call on your life. He calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment. He threw away his garment. He, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? Really, Jesus? What, are you trying to be funny? He just said, what do you want me to do for you? Imagine being that blind man standing there. This is a joke. I'm blind. What do you think I want you to do? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus in the way. The crowd told him to be quiet and stop yelling for God. It's okay to ask for a little bit of change. It's okay to beg for a fix. It's it's acceptable for you to numb the pain. It's acceptable. But they told him to stop yelling for God. Stop yelling for Jesus. If he had listened to the crowd, he would have never gotten healed. It says he left his garment. That would have been a government-issued garment that certified him as a beggar. The government would give you that for your handicap, so that made you legal to sit on the side of the road and beg for money. That garment certified him as a blind man, as a beggar. Lots of y'all have been certified addicts and drunks and Hopeless and divorced and broke, beggars and screw ups. And until you throw that off, till you lay that baggage down, you can't be healed. You're carrying your Plan B on your back. That's not faith. You're by him throwing that thing down, that that was his only way to survive. By him throwing that down, he couldn't legally even beg for money anymore. He'd get thrown in jail. I mean, that was his backup plan. What if this whole thing with Jesus didn't work? What if I don't get my sight? What if I can't see? What if I, what if I still don't have vision? Then at least I got plan B. But plan A wouldn't work if he was carrying plan B because he couldn't go all in. There would be no faith if I got a backup plan and so okay God now I hear you calling me I'm going to step out and try something crazy but I got a backup plan right here so if it doesn't work (laughs) no skin off my back that's not faith you got to throw it off get rid of it get rid of the cup Get rid of the garment because that cup always runs dry. The beggar's cup, the feel sorry for me cup, it it runs dry. Instead of praying for and looking for healing, a lot of times we just look for a band aid. Right? we just pray for a fix rather than praying for healing we rather pick off the bad leaves than dig down and cut the root We put band-aids on bullet holes and God has so much more for us we pray for change God says you are the change. remember when um... pharaoh told the children of israel that they had to make double the amount of bricks and so the children of israel they were slaves and he said oh i'm gonna build more pyramids so y'all need to make double the amount of bricks and so their prayer to god they believed they served the all-powerful creator jehovah yahweh and and their prayer was that god would give them strength To be able to make more bricks and that God would give them more hay, supplies to pack into, work into the mud to make the brick, to make more bricks. That was their prayer. Rather than praying for freedom from the oppression, rather than praying for freedom from the bondage, rather than, than seeing something bigger, hey, God, set us free from this maniac. Instead, they prayed that they'd be better slaves. We all become slaves to to different things. But my God, let's not let our prayer be, hey, God, let me be a better slave. No. Freedom, healing, power. You don't have to be a slave. We start some awesome water-dipping ministries instead of fixing the pipe. In 2020, let's don't start a bunch of Band-Aid ministries for people with bullet holes. Jesus paid the price for you to be free. Jesus paid the price for you to be back in relationship with God and other people. It's the church we talked about last week. The church is not you individually. The church is when we connect, when we come together, what we can do as a body, as a people. That's the church. Jesus paid the price for us to be able to connect, for us to have clean hands. Nobody can ascend to the hill of God unless they have clean hands and a pure heart. Who's that? None of us. We've all sinned, we've all messed up, all have sinned, Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. So Jesus, the sacrificial spotless lamb was offered to pay the price so that we could have clean hands. Look what James, Jesus' brother said, James 4, 8. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. How do you draw near to a God that is everywhere? Like, I can get near to Bo by going towards Bo, but what if Bo was everywhere? We believe God's omnipresent. He's inside of me. He's in space. He's under the ground. He's in my pulpit. He's right here. He's right there. He's right... There is no... So, how do you draw near to something that is everywhere? I'm the same close to God here as I am here, as I am here. I have no idea. If you figure it out, let me know. All right, let's read the rest of the verse. (laughs) No. God's everywhere. But we get so much baggage on us. and We're not in relationships. And we run away from our connections, from our relationships, from the wealth, the blessings that God gave us. We isolate ourselves. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Wash your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Because of Jesus, we have clean hands. One time, the uh, disciples of the Pharisees, they came to Jesus, and uh, they said, Hey, teacher, your disciples eat with unwashed hands. We saw them eating food, and they didn't even wash their hands. No hand sanitizer? Nothing. Nothing. There was more to it because the according to their law, it was the ceremonial washing of hands, and they had to wash their hands, and they weren't allowed to touch any food without washing their hands and all this stuff. And they had The priests had to wash their hands in the temple and just symbolize the, the washing of your hands, that you had to have clean hands. and They were just trying to catch Jesus and his disciples doing something wrong. Remember we looked at that scripture a couple weeks ago that says, "Seek and you will find. If you're seeking something bad, you're going to find it. If you're seeking something good, you're going to find it. Jesus was walking around healing people. Did they seek that out to point that out? No. Any of the good stuff? No. They were seeking something bad and they found, Oh, they didn't wash their hands before they ate. They could have found good, but no. And Jesus said, here's what Jesus said to him. My disciples are not going to do your traditions. No. My followers, my disciples, they're not going to do those traditions. Isaiah said it like this. My people worship me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. The culture of washing hands was never meant to be this show that the Pharisees made it. I wash my hands and I have clean hands and I can go and speak to God. It was never meant to be a show. It was about what God wanted to do on the inside. It wasn't about hands, it was really about the heart. Look at Psalms 24, 24, 3. We'll wrap it up. Psalm 24, 3. Who shall ascend? This is David writing. A type of Christ, David. He writes this song. Who shall ascend to the hill of God? The hill of the Lord. Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands. And a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Jesus' blood washed our hands, and by his stripes we are healed. He healed our blindness, he took away our hurts and wounds, He He healed us. Relationship was restored. That's how we can draw near to God. David just asked the question, who can ascend to the hill of God? Who, like, who can go into God's presence? Only he that has clean hands. And because of Jesus, that's us. We can ascend to the hill of God. We can draw near to God. And in church, what we're doing right now and in small groups and Bible studies and warrior training and Wednesday night and playing ball and book study. We come together and we wash our hands and we remember the blood. Like iron sharpens iron. James said, cleanse your hands. How? He said it in the first part. By getting close to God. By drawing near to God and His people. It cleanse your hands. Purifies your heart. I'm sure you have some regrets from your life from last year. But it's probably not the times you spent doing good that you regret. It's probably not the time you spent drawing close to God or praying or reading the Word. Or It's not for me. The times of regret that I can look back on in my life was not times that I spent worshiping God. I don't regret praying except for the time I prayed for patience. <laughs> I regret that. <laughs> hit you with a little bit of history. James Garfield. Anybody know who he is? He was our president. He didn't want to be president. He grew up very poor. For a lot of his life and his younger years, he didn't even have a pair of shoes. He wanted a pair, but they just didn't have the money. Super poor. And then his family realized how smart he was. And they tried to send him to college. Because they said, what a waste. This dude's way too smart to be hanging around here. Hanging around with us. So they sent him to college. And uh, he almost drowned And somehow he lived, and they were like surprised that he lived. And so he said he knew from that moment that God had a purpose for his life, that that God had something for him to do. He realized, God has a plan for me. And so he paid his college tuition by working as a janitor in the mornings and the evenings. So he would get up and work as a janitor all morning, and then he would study and go to class during the day. And then at night, he was a janitor again, cleaning and working to try to put himself through college because, like I said, they had no money. And as he started studying and really, like, getting access to books and learning and, and things like that there at college, as he started studying, he realized that he had been given a very powerful mind, and that stuff that other people were struggling with just came easy to him answers and memorization and things like it's just he says that he realized he was gifted he was blessed with a with a strong mind this is what he said a slumbering thunder awakened in his soul when he was doing homework <laughs> nerd no a slumbering thunder awakened in his soul? Do you know there is a slumbering thunder inside your soul? Every one of you. You have a slumbering thunder in your soul. It's what you were created for. It's the thing that just unlocks the realm of the impossible. It's When you tap into what God has called you to do and the purpose that's on your life, it's like you start to realize, wow. He was a dark horse candidate. He never even put his name in the ring to be president. Didn't want to be president. Never even put his name in. Someone else put his name in. Um, he didn't want the office for himself. He was trying to help someone else get elected as president. And then someone else nominated him. He was at a convention to give a speech for somebody else at this presidential convention. And someone said, what do we want? After, I guess, he was so smart and brought such a good speech, they said, what do we want? And the crowd yells, uh, James Garfield. That's what we want, James Garfield. And he's like, What? no, I, I don't want to be president. And that's how this dude got elected like he didn't even want to be. But he was only president for six months. And two of those months were spent laying in a bed, laying in his hospital bed after somebody attempted to assassinate him by shooting him in the back twice. So, really, only four months he was our president healthy. He was heading to the train station when he got shot. He was going with his sons and a couple other members. Uh, of his cabinet and he was going to visit his wife who was at their home, not at the White House because she had been sick with malaria. And at the train station, somebody walked up and shot him in the back twice. His two boys were there and uh, one of the members of the cabinet that were there with him was Robert Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son, who was also there when his dad, Abraham Lincoln, got shot in the head. This is the crazy part. Maybe y'all already know this. Maybe I just maybe I'm the only one that didn't know all this. Uh, Robert Todd Lincoln takes off running to go get a doctor. Um, he was there when his dad got shot and another cool piece of information 20 years later he would be there when William McKinney got shot as well he was there for 3 out of 4 presidential assassinations if I'm a president and I see this dude sitting there I'm going to be like nah see ya you can go find you another job. You can quit hanging around me, man. Get out of here, Robert Todd Lincoln. 3 out of 4. He was there for every single assassination that US history has known except for JFK. So Robert Todd Lincoln runs to get a doctor. What doctor did he get? Dr. Dr. Bliss. No, I didn't just stutter or say something. The dude's first name was Doctor. (laughs) Doctor, and he was a doctor. Bliss. The same doctor that he ran and got when his dad got shot in the head. And he couldn't save him. So he runs for Doctor, Doctor Bliss. And he brings him back. And Bliss was very happy. Very excited that he got called because him being the same doctor that was called for Abraham Lincoln and couldn't save him, he wanted a shot at redemption and fame of saving the president. So he was really happy. They brought him back, and he started right away there on the train floor working on this dude and trying to get him, trying to, trying to save him, trying to save Garfield. And then, as you, if you read the, the story, the biography, it tells that he got the doctor, doctor, doctor. He got very protective, and he wouldn't let anybody else look at him, anybody else work on him. He wanted to take all the credit for saving the president's life. He wouldn't let other doctors look at him. He carried him away into the room, and no one was allowed to examine him or look at him except for him. Only I will work on him, he said. Um, And then there was a guy, maybe you've heard of him, Alexander Graham Bell, the guy that made up the telephone. He invented a machine to try to find the bullet. He invented a metal detector to try to find the bullet in Garfield. And so he asked, Dr. Dr. Bliss, if he could come and bring this metal detector and I'll tell you exactly where the bullet is because the word was that he can't find the bullet to get it out. So he let him come in and he let uh, Bell come in and bring his metal detector. But he was only allowed to check on the right side um, by the liver because that's where Dr. Bliss said the bullet was. And he tried it, and it was a big failure. They couldn't find it. Uh, The metal detector couldn't find the bullet, and Bell looked like this big failure in a dummy. Later on, they realized the metal detector worked fine. Part of the problem was the mattress that he was laying on had metal springs in it, so that was messing with it. And later, the autopsy revealed that Dr. Bliss was wrong. It wasn't, the bullet wasn't even on the right side by the liver. It had gone in over there and it was on the left side, lodged in some tissue. The autopsy also said that it was a distinctly survivable gunshot wound that he would have lived had he not been treated. the two bullets had somehow avoided all vital organs and the spine and lodged in some tissue. So if he just stopped the bleeding, they said he could have lived with those two bullets in there for the rest of his life. Well, I guess he did live for the rest of his life, but it would have been a whole lot longer than two months. Come to think of it, we all live for the rest of our life. Depends on how long that is. What he died of is infection and blood poisoning from the doctor, repeatedly trying to remove the bullet with unwashed hands. Starting the day of the shooting on the train floor where he started digging his fingers into the wound, trying to find the bullet. With a dirty hand. Dr. Joe Lister, sound like anything? Lister? Listerine was named after this dude. All right. Dr. Joe Lister had tried to tell everyone 16 years before this shooting that germs were responsible for infection, and that we should wash our hands and sterilize everything and change bandages to keep wounds clean. Americans laughed at him and said he was an idiot because we believed in bad air. That's what causes infections is bad air. And they thought that cleaning wounds and changing bandages... Would open you up to bad air. Washing your hands could bring bad air in. So Dr. Bliss said, This is a quote, the dirtier the better. Don't change the sheets, don't change the bandages. We don't want to bring anything in that could get him sicker or infected. Seriously, so go look it up, read it. it sounds pretty dumb. When Guto, however you say his name, the guy that shot him in the back, you know, he went and got his shoes shined right before he went to the train station and and shot Garfield and told him, I'm about to do something that's going to make me famous. I need to make sure I got good-looking shoes. He got his shoes shined. He just was looking for fame was his reason. But uh, when he was hanged, he said, I may have shot him but it was his doctor that killed him. And that was true. So Garfield died because of infection. What, the wound kept getting reopened over and over and over. He'd go in and dig for that bullet with dirty hands. And he wasn't allowed to heal wasn't allowed to move on past the pain, past the wrong that somebody had done to him cuz it kept getting opened up and opened up and opened up. When his body had the power, the healing power was on the inside of him that if they would have just left him alone, he would have healed up and moved on. But it kept getting reopened. And Garfield died. Because the wound kept getting reopened and eventually the blood was poisoned. And it brought death. It was because of a bad relationship. The doctor just had wrong beliefs and wrong information. He wanted to help. And he was just digging around in there doing the wrong stuff. He had dirty hands. had a bad relationship with someone who wouldn't let him heal make sure you're not in close relationship with people that won't let you heal minister to them reach out to them help them heal if they keep sticking their dirty fingers up in your wounds you need to separate until you find healing and then go try to help them find healing if you need to help them fine but separate until you are healed until it's a scar don't go around them when it's a scab some of y'all are carrying baggage you have scabs that that should be scars and it's costing you greatly Jesus paid the price for you to have clean hands so that you can help other people. It's how you can bear somebody else's burden, how you can help them heal, you can help them lay down their baggage, you can help them find healing if you have clean hands. And how were your hands clean? Washed with the blood. If you're drawing near to God, you're close and you're connected and you have the strength that comes from the body and from your relationship with God. Then you have the clean hands to go in and help somebody else. To bear somebody else's burden, to take the baggage off of them, to, to help them heal. You must connect to fresh blood. Not poison or toxic. Ephesians five twenty six. It's like the next verse right after all the marriage verses that everybody likes to read about marriage and how Christ loved the church. Um, and Paul's talking. And Ephesians five twenty six says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Cleanse it. You know what he's talking about there? The church. He's saying husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and uh, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Get in the word. Get close to God, the living word, the revelation. That's how you wash. Stay clean, prevent infection. He's talking about the church. And remember, you're not the church. We are the church. You don't sit at your house and say I'm the church because you're not. You are only the church when you are connected. Your baggage will isolate you and keep you out of real relationship. I thought about thinking of washing hands at Matthew 27 right before Jesus went to the cross, Pilate washed his hands to say, I want nothing to do with this. He washed his hands of the situation. I don't want this on my hands. And then Jesus went to the cross and he washed our hands with his blood. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin. Why? Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's who we are. The righteousness of God, His sons, His daughters, chosen, powerful, free. We don't have to be under the control of anything. Free. You're not your pain. You're not your baggage. You're not your scabs. You're not broken. You're free. The message of the gospel isn't try, it's trust. What he did is enough. Let's pray. God, give us clean hands and a pure heart. We love you. God, open up our eyes to the baggage that we carry. God, I don't want anything in my life to slow me down or to cost me. or to block my vision. God, we're desperate for you. We're not good with a fix. We want sight. We want vision. Help us to lay down our garments. Help us to lay down our labels and the things that we've been certified. And God, bring healing. You are our healer. By your stripes we are healed. So God heal the hurts. Heal the wounds. Turn them into God's stories. Turn them into testimonies. Do what you said you would do in Romans. You said you work all things together for our good. God we trust that you're going to work it out no matter what we've been through no matter what bad decisions we've made no matter what abuse has happened to us whatever we believe that you're big enough and powerful enough to work it all together for our good we're going to obey we're going to draw near to you we're going to connect to each other God, we love you. Thanks for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.